crisp mountain air on your face. Cold. Clean. Refreshing. Kind of reminds you of your beers. The Coors family of fine beers. Golden, Colorado, since 1873. Before we get started, a quick note. This piece includes discussions of drug use and mental illness and a bunch of curse words, so it's not for kids. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to part two. In the introduction to part one, I describe how when I was 21, my friend Tony died. And in the lead up to what is the 25th anniversary of his death, I sat down with some of Tony's best friends from his last years, some of my best friends to this day, to talk about Tony again and to tell Tony's stories and try and understand better what happened back in 1996 and why has Tony had such an effect on some of our lives all these years later. So here's part two of We Remember Tony. Yeah, but that's kind of the chronology I remember is like when he moves back from New York, he is definitely trying to avoid some bad habits. And moving back here, he was definitely a kind of semi-manic depressant or bipolar, however you want to put it. And Tay and I worked a lot with him on that. (laughs) And there was a sequence there where, I mean, he stayed with me at my family house for a number of weeks and like spent the night like on the couch. and, And I was happy because I think he needed a little looking after And then at some point, I think he went on a little journey around to visit everyone, people in LA, and then back out to New York. And I think that was about where where the story ended. He moved back to San Francisco in the middle of a peak when it was getting really bad. I think it was getting to such a fever pitch that he knew he had to take himself out of New York. And then he went to rehab at St. Mary's in San Francisco, where he was staying in like a hospital room. And I was back in San Francisco for like a winter break. And I remember hanging out with him, going to see him at his mom's house and going up to St. Mary's to see him in this hospital room. And I guess he was staying there, some sort of inpatient rehab something or other. And he wanted to smoke weed. And him, like, convincing me, like, no, come on, man. You know, I'm not here for weed. It's for the serious stuff. I can just smoke a little weed. That'll help me. Or some bullshit that I fucking believed or just wanted to believe because I wanted to smoke weed. And I remember in the bathroom of this hospital room at St. Mary's where he's there for rehab, closing this tiny little bathroom and, like, plugging up the vents and smoking a joint or something with him there how stupid and i remember either saying to you or thinking i should say to you 
don't do coke with him because for you it's just fun. Yeah. But for him, he's going off the rails here. I'm not positive that we had that conversation, but I am sure that I felt that way as well. I had a lot of like guilt and ambiguity towards the end because I was just like, I, I want to hang out with my friend Tony too. And like, this is kind of part of it now. In fact, part of the reason I didn't go down there that weekend was because I, I didn't want to do coke with him. I like, didn't want to do that thing. I didn't want to be in that scene. And I knew that guy Mike was there and I knew what that meant. Everyone was going to act like everything was great and fun and they're just going to all fucked up on cocaine the whole time. And I didn't really want to do that. And I felt like super uncomfortable with it. I remember Tay and I feeling like very concerned when he had decided to make that one last trip back to New York. We felt like a lot of the bad influences just in terms of energetic being in New York and uh, that that was going to take him down a spiral. You know, at that point, it was very sad, like saying goodbye, because you kind of felt like this could be the last. I mean, when your friend's disappearing, doing like heroin binging or something like that, you know, then they're off on their own outside of your ability to kind of look over them. And basically with the kind of notion of like going back to like the big game, you get that feeling, I really don't want to say goodbye, you know? Yeah. And what else I think was significant about that day when he was at my apartment sniffing fucking Tabasco was that uh, that was like one of the few times that I got to hang out with him alone in a long time. And so I was pretty psyched about that. But I think that was the more alarming thing was to see him during the day alone and us just chilling like we always had. And he was really super preoccupied with cocaine. Like that was what the day was about. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I don't know that I said anything, or, but I was like really like shocked and like scared. And I was like, this is going bad. No, we did talk. I think it was that day. Because I know we had a conversation at some point, And I think it was the week before he died. And maybe it was the, all the same day where he was like, no, I'm going to stop doing this stuff. And I was like, really? And he was like, no, I, I want to. I have to. Like, this is all fucked up. Maybe that was also turned into, I just want to do one last hurrah. It was like one last score. And that was what going to Michael's was that weekend. And it was like, come. And I was like, no, I can't go. I don't want to go there. I remember the night that he went missing, before I knew that he went missing, I was just laying on the couch and just looking up at the ceiling in New York, my my, my spot, you know, on 89th up there, and having like an out-of-body experience where I was like outside myself. It was like a thing that used to happen to me when I was a little kid a lot. It doesn't really happen at all anymore. But when I was a kid, it used to happen to me all the time where I would just like be at the kids park and I would look at the sand and I would think like, what is this? What is the sand? What it, where are we at? What? And I would like get further and further, almost like a picture where it pulls out and then you see like 
the city, then you see like the earth and then the universe. It was like I would get outside of myself where I couldn't even comprehend life. I felt like I was losing my mind in a way, like I was just getting out of myself. Like everything about being a human or being in our reality made no sense. And I would start to kind of lose myself and almost like I was just like floating in space and it didn't feel good. It felt ominous. It felt serious. It felt there was a disturbance in the force. You know what I mean? The thing that fucking jerked me out of that was getting a call from Brenda. Hysterical. We, have you heard from Tony? We can't find Tony. You know, like that kind of thing. And as soon as she said that, I immediately knew that he was gone. So I was dating a girl who went to Smith. And I had driven to Smith from RPI. So Smith is in... I don't even know. It's like kind of mid Massachusetts between Boston and Albany. And I was near Albany. So I drove an hour and a half, two hours to go to her place. And we were hanging out and it was like the beginning of our relationship. And the phone rings. I'm at her place and we're just like chilling, listening to music and hanging out. And she's like, Hey, yeah, hold on one sec. And gives the phone to me. Like what the fuck? It's my dad. And he's like, hey, Dave, I have been trying to get a hold of you. Tony died. And I was like, what are you fucking talking about? I'm in this like strange place with a girl I just kind of met. And then it just like sank in. And I didn't know what to do. And you kind of, you know, how you react to these things where, you know, you're like, got to get my keys. I got to get the fuck out. Like, I got to go be like with my friends or I got to go like, and then I just like decompressed and started crying. I had been in Philly with Eric and Ted Wright and Jenny Price. We would always take weird, fun weekend trips or find ways to get out, knowing how to car. But we'd had some fun weekend out of town. We had driven back on this Easter Sunday. And I lived in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And this was 96 and... You know, I'm a year into living in New York and Red Hook is not what Red Hook is today. It was pretty barren. And I had this weird outpost of a house in this apartment that was kind of in the cutters. And I remember Jenny had dropped me off and she had a blue forerunner. And so had, you know, driven me back from Philly and dropped me in Brooklyn and had headed out. And I was back in my apartment. I remember sitting in my bedroom there. It was furniture cobbled together from hauling in off the street. I literally, I think I slept on a mattress. I had pulled in off the street. I was really into, you know, my uh, producing music stuff. So I had like my sampler keyboard and stuff propped up on like, I think I had an old door across like milk crates to make a desk. Anyway, I remember this room vividly and sitting there and I got a call from Jonah and I, a vivid picture of you know, where I was sitting and what I was looking at as I held the phone to my head and Jonah told me. And then that feeling of like, I'm just sitting here in this place in fucking Red Hook, Brooklyn. And where am I? And feeling just as lonely as lonely could be. And oh my God, this thing has happened. And just feeling like a tiny speck in this, like, what, what? Like, 
not understanding the universe at that moment. So he went down there. It must have been like a Friday or something. It was the weekend. I know it was a weekend. And I went to work, Kinko's. <laughs> I remember I was, uh, there was this like dude at work, heavy set guy with long hair who's really funny. And we would hang out occasionally. After, and so he came over to my house after work. And I was playing the movie Babe for him. I was like, I love the fucking opening of this movie. Listen to this music. And I was like blasting it two in the morning or something crazy like that. And I'm blasting Babe. <laughs> like top volume and like on my bed dancing. I'm like, listen to this. Listen to the exuberance and the energy of this. Like, I, how, how can you not feel amazing right now? And the phone rings. And I was like, I'm fucking in this. I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm like, woo, babe. And the message machine, this is when we still had message machines, goes on. And Rosemary's voice comes on with a seriousness that arrested me immediately. And she was like, Jonah, are you there? Pick up. Jonah, are you there? Pick up. And I was like, ah, fuck, you know, turn off, babe. And like, what's going on? And then she was like, Tony died or Tony's missing or something or she, whatever she said. I knew he was dead the second she said it. I think he was the first peer of mine to die, which is kind of an existential crisis in and of itself. It changed my understanding of like the world and mortality and relationships. So I'd feel different having loved him and known him and watched him die, basically. Detectives Mike Lowry and Marcus Burnett. Just punch it, man. Just punch it. Go! On the Miami Police Force. They don't follow the rules. They make them. Sir. I'm a bad boy. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? Waited R. At theaters April 7th. Tonight. Maybe I can call you sometime. Sure. In a city full of beautiful people. You were flirting with him. You meet someone new every day. The waves are up. If you want to meet me. Yeah. And on any given night. What's happening to us? I don't know. Anything can happen. I was just so sure that Dylan and I were meant for each other. An all-new 90210. I'll drive away and I'll never look back. Just say the word. I don't want you to do that. Tonight on Fox. Tony and Michael went out on, on a paddle boat and they got out and the water was rough or something. Somehow they were fucking around it and they flipped and got separated and Michael had made his way back, but they couldn't find Tony. And I remember thinking how fucking cold it was out, how cold those waters were. I think there was something weird, like Tony had given him his wallet. Do you remember this? 
I also just remember thinking like Tony always wore heavy boots and like thinking about those boots in the water and how heavy they must have been and how impossible that must have been. So I think she must have just talked me through what we knew at that point, which was that, that Michael had swam back to shore and Tony hadn't. And um, yeah, they'd flipped this boat. Since he was kind of missing for a few days, a few of us, just to kind of make ourselves like feel a little better, came up with the joke that he is like the living Luke Perry, in which we always had that joke in the past because of the way he lived in the high school. But in 90210, when Luke Perry goes missing, no one knows where he is. And then he kind of just shows up and, you know, everyone's like, you know, the heroes return, you know. And that's what we were hoping for, you know, with all our with all our best intention. Like, I mean, as you know, I think not, this isn't unique to me, but I, th- I think it's true for all of us. But I think we all dealt with it in different ways. But I was so ill-equipped to deal with Tone's death and the way that he died that... The way that I sit with my memories of him and of his death aren't joyful. So much of what I have done for the past like 20 years is to try not to open up the like tender spaces of thinking about Tone as a person. Sorry, I'm trying not to cry, so I have to stop talking for a minute. I guess there's, like, those stages of grief, you know? Because I remember, like, thinking afterwards, maybe he swam to shore somewhere. Maybe he just wants to escape all this. He doesn't want to talk to us anymore. That seems reasonable. <laughs> um, maybe it's a solution. I remember very distinctly saying something about, you know, future plans. Uh, you know, I was probably going on about, you know, being an actor, whatever the fuck I wanted to do, whatever. And then I was like saying, you know, and then you might. And then I remember him saying like something to the effect of like, I don't plan on living past 25 or some shit like that. And I remember saying, yo, man, don't say that. I really didn't like hearing that because, you know, it's like when you find a girl that you think you love or you know, a good friend that's like becoming one of your best friends. It's like, you're imagining them being in your life forever, you know? And all your future plans have them in it, you know, where you think like, yeah, well, you're going to be there to see this and that and the other thing, and we're going to do this. So when he said that shit, I was like, yo, why the fuck would you say that? And he was like, ah, it's just true or whatever. It was like, he wasn't doing the drugs. This wasn't during the bad time. This was during kind of good times, you know? And He said that as if it was just a fact of the story of his life. He was like, oh, I'm not going to live to be blah, 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 you know? He said it so casually and as if it was just, oh, did you, you didn't know that? Like, oh, I'm, I'm only living to this, you know? But that was just very spooky to me. And it was always something that I had in the back of my mind that like he was okay with that. And I didn't like that. When shit started unraveling for him, that always echoed in my mind that he had that thought and that feeling about his life that he was going to be like a James Dean character, you know? And it scared me. Yes. I mean, he had a ton of issues underneath all the stuff that was gregarious, fun, laughing, enjoying life, you know, making everyone around him feel great. And there was all that. 
you know, he built up my confidence. He did all those things for me, but underneath there was this tremendous sadness. And I guess my point is, is that I didn't know what to do as a 20 year old other than, you know, check him into a hospital or like be there for him. Didn't know there were other things we could do to help him. And I don't even know if he wanted the help at the time. I think he wanted to continue down this path. Drugs aside, whatever it was that was going to deteriorate his life into ending it, I think was the road he was always on. But like, I think on, on some level, like I spent a long time trying to grapple with like feeling responsible for his death. And, like, having to not toggle between feeling, like, responsible or feeling not responsible, you know? And, like, just sort of having to sit with, like, what I think is the truth. Like, my total and maybe all of ours total incapacity to be able to give the relationship and tone what was really needed in order for him to survive, and it might be like, oh, you know, you never could have done that or no one ever could have done that. But this, it still is what was necessary, you know. And having failed at that is like a really hard thing to like live with, you know. And I'm not one of those people that when my brother died, people would be like, oh, he's still with you. He's watching over you. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, like I'm not one of those people who like really thinks that, you know, or has those beliefs really but i would still do it anyway you know just to like say it out into the fucking universe to whoever's listening to whatever energy it was that he was and whatever i I still am and who the fuck knows what this whole mixture is you know what i mean and i'll just say it and just be grateful for having, having a special you know having a close friend like that and just say hey man i miss you just in case you are listening and you think i forgot about you the amount of sadness and uh sort of personal anguish i think tony carried with him in general it was was noticeable you know in in the fun times that we had we did have serious talks and i know that like i think he had a lot of like questions about his own identity. I think he had a struggle with the fact that his father was gay and maybe he wondered like what that meant about him. And I think that injured his self-image and created a, a fragility that um, was a little bit inescapable and maybe tortured him and created a darkness and a sort of sense of loss. And maybe it's just the loss of a father, which is significant, but then maybe the questions about what that meant about himself, who his father was, you know, and I think there's, at that point, there's a lot of like uh, sexuality and stuff in your life and a lot of questions about that. So maybe you're trying to figure out who you are, what your identity is, all of these things swirled around his soul and it, and it tortured him. Well, I, he would talk a lot about how smart his dad was and sort of try to understand or to theorize like why his his dad might have been sort of like exceptionally brilliant and then also when he was depressed he would talk about his dad kind of being depressed or being sick you know and not getting out of bed and being angry and being sad and he would 
I think, see the way that his dad felt reflected in the way that he was feeling or see the way that he was feeling reflected in the way he had seen his dad feeling. I don't know. I don't know how to put it. Tony taught me about like not caring about what other people thought, which I thought was like such a great quality about him. And it gave me the confidence to be able to be like, that's another person's issue, not my problem. And I don't know that my parents gave me this necessarily, but I think Tony did. Like We can control certain things in our life and there are other things in our lives we cannot control. And Tony gave me that foundation of these are the things that I'm going to care about. And these are the things I'm not going to care about because I can't do anything about them. Now, I think he was that building block for me. I don't know how much I learned of it then or how much I've reflected on it since and grown from it. But he was definitely super influential for me when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, like for sure. Built that for me. If I would ever get down on myself or whatever, whatever, I'll, I'll always remember that he would always be just my biggest cheerleader, man. And he would like, I'll never fucking forget this. And it always to this day is almost making me choke up right now. But he was just like one time we were talking about shit and I was telling him about some insecurities about making it or or being able to do this shit or whatever. And I remember him saying, he's like, he's like, oh man, he's like, I know you're going to do it. He's like, he's like, you're my favorite actor. You know what I mean? And like, I mean, that can't be the truth. But like the fact that he said that with like a straight face and with like love in his voice, God damn, man, that shit meant a lot to me, man. And And it's like, as crazy as it might seem, when shit got real hard for me in my life and, uh, and shit seemed bleak and, and I was like fucking, you know, busting tables or, or just, you know, fucking up on auditions or just like, you know, just feeling like a fucking loser or whatever. Those kind of things, those kind of memories and just that one gesture of kindness coming from from someone that I whose opinion I valued and who who I cared about. For him to say that to me, for whatever fucking reason he said it, it gave me, it gave me some kind of fucking, some kind of strength, some kind of belief in myself, some kind of like twinkle in my fucking eye that helped to not let the creative fire, the to not let that shit just die and burn out. Him saying that, it stuck with me. Whenever I had any success and I did something, you know, if I booked some fucking TV show or some shit, I would definitely talk to him. Yo, can you fucking believe this shit? I didn't just crash and burn. You know what I mean? I did this shit. I remember when he died, I think like a lot of people wondered, you know, if it was like suicide, you know, or if it was like anything. Yeah. Like the thing about him was like, 
he didn't want to die. Like, he was totally self-destructive, but, like, had a tremendous passion for life, you know? Like, loved people so deeply and was just really damaged. And so, like, I don't know, I think, like, his ability to, like, be really fucking funny, you know, and and curious and, like... Like, I think that that was all what was, like, amazing about him, but it was, like, it can't be separated from everything that he was struggling with. What I've always thought about since we were 21 when he died was this idea that he never got to really be an adult, that he died at age 21 and never got to go past that. For years after he died, I would always think about Whenever some event happened, I'd always think, shit, Tony didn't get to see this. You know, even like a cool album would come out and I'd be like, oh, Tony would have loved this album. I remember stuff like when September 11th happened, like, whoa, Tony died in a world before September 11th. So if I got to talk to Tony at age 44, you know, I would just tell him something about, I'm so sorry you didn't get to experience the world as an adult and see that there was all sorts of great things coming to you if you could have gotten through those bad times. God damn it. You know, there's times where I just wish I could just sit there with him for a couple minutes and be like, yo, listen to what has happened since you left, you know, or just shit, (laughs) just even in pop culture or fucking things that have happened. I frequently think of him when I think about Will Smith because he never got to see Will Smith become who he is. And and because this is the funniest fucking thing about it is this is what I always go back to. Tony was the first person I heard about Bad Boys. Remember the movie Bad Boys? Not the fucking Sean Penn one. The the fucking <laughs> So he t- he goes he goes, "Oh, hey, do you know that fucking Martin Lawrence and fucking DJ Jazzy Jeff are going to be in some cop like action movie together?" And I go, "Nah, that can't be right." You know, like I remember just being like, "I don't understand that." And then like we both found out like he just got it wrong and it was of course it was the Fresh Prince you lose your best friend when you're 21 and see how it feels and see what's like to have someone you admire taken away when you're that young. It makes a huge mark on you. My son's name is Ethan J. Antonio Goldberg. Like, I mean, he's someone I will keep in my mind for the rest of my life. And I will never forget him because I've never seen anyone so happy and so sad at the same time where I've cared about them and worried about them, but had such a great time with them at the same time. He he made an impression on me. And you know what? The other thing is, I love you, and I love Jonah, and I love Mike, and I love Rasan, and I love all you guys so much. I know we don't see each other that much, but sharing that, every time I see you, it brings me back to when I was... 20 and we had these memories of being carefree and young and having fun and we just had we had a great life and tony was the part of it for me was he was the center of it 
you know, it just, it means a lot to me. I think for like a really long time, I felt really scared of changing, you know? I remember right when Tone died, I wanted to get like hypnotized. (laughs) I wanted to like get hypnotized and like record every memory I had of him so I would never forget a second. You know, I was so terrified of this idea that like things happen in the past and the further away that you get from them, the more they like disappear. And I've since come to think that's not really how it works, you know? I think that instead, I don't think I've actually lost any details. I think like it's still really difficult for me to to like open up one day in that time and remember it because all of the feelings and all of the interactions and all of the moments that I had with Tone were so like powerful to me. It was so deep, that relationship. But I think that over all these years, I've just like come to understand him like in many different ways, you know? Do you think I'm here talking about Tony now, 20-some years later? I feel like you have always kept the torch burning out of all the friends in memory of him. And I think it's good to kind of keep that going. It helps everyone bring their memory back together of those who are still around. You know, it's also important to kind of, you know, like dig a little deeper and like also see how memory bends in time it's amazing and the things that really start to stand out in people's story when they're part of your life it's not the thing that you remember when you're with somebody what you remember later is often a very different thing right in terms of like what the wake that's left behind somebody how it affects you more than sometimes the person themselves like but uh i think uh especially for all of us You know, he was a very strong energy to all of our lives that came at a time where we were all transitioning to adulthood. And so I think, you know, for all of us, like, it's kind of interesting to think about how that affected us and how that kind of rippled forward as we started to grow. Also, he's an interesting character because just as characters go, I mean, he had so much potential, you know, physically. Uh, He had money, he had intelligence. He didn't really have anything really holding him back except for some kind of turmoil that he might have had inside. And I think that's what I really felt like was his biggest demon or his biggest shadow, you know? I might not be remembering it right, but I think that there was some point where you and I were talking and I said, like, I'm sorry that I just, like, keep bringing it up or something. And you said, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it and I want to remember him and I want to like, you know, don't apologize for talking about it. So I really feel grateful for like, I mean, I feel grateful to like 21 year old you for having, for knowing that uh, because I think it was hard to manage those big feelings that we were all having and 
I think a lot of us didn't know how. And I also like, um, I really appreciate that you for 25 years or whatever have sort of kept, kept it going. And, you know, I dreamed about him a lot for probably the first several years. And it was almost always that dream of he pops up again and he's like, I didn't really die. I was just hiding. I went somewhere. And I think that has to do with like your brain not really being able to comprehend death, the idea that you could know somebody and they could be gone and just, he can't really be gone. He was just hiding. I had a lot of those dreams for years of, I knew it, I knew it. He had been playing a trick on us. Always dreams like that. And I would even be able to articulate that in the dream. I used to have dreams that you faked it, but then I actually thought you died. And no, see, I knew you hadn't really died. Here you are. I dream about all the time. At least once a month, maybe more frequently than that. Once in a while, it's me when I'm older and him when he's younger. And he's like, Dave, like, fucking loosen up. Let's go do this. And I'm like, oh, like, all right, fine, you know. And then other times it's him coming back. And it's like, where the fuck have you been? Like, what's going on? Like, we thought you were dead for the last 22 years, you know? And it's that, that, that like, I'm seeing you again. There's this excitement of, oh, God, there, we have so much to catch up on. Like, how are you? Um, but yeah, I, I dream about him all the time. Yeah. I do remember not long after he died having pretty vivid dreams that he was still alive, that it was all a misunderstanding, and here he was. And it, it was close enough to his having been alive that, like, I could, I still knew his smell. I still, like, there were sort of sensory features to those dreams. But I actually can't remember the last time that I had a dream about him. As the years have gone on, it becomes exponentially less, which is something that when I'm saying it right now, I feel guilty. But there came a time when I, I thought about him so much for a handful of years, you know, after he passed away. And then, you know, along the way, life, things, other shit ends up happening where you kind of feel like you have to... Um, it's like you have to compartmentalize the shit. I don't know if you have to. It's kind of maybe I should say that's what I've chosen to do to be able to kind of like cope with certain shit is like just be like, OK, I, I got to put that one on the back burner while I fucking handle this shit, you know. And so, you know, just over the years, it's kind of just like it's like I've I've, I've pushed it further back in the closet of my mind, you know. I mean, I think about him a lot. I dream still about him. Less often now, maybe once every six months. And when I say once every six months, it's the dream that I have, which is that somehow he's just been like hiding out somewhere this whole time. And that he's like, oh yeah, hey, I'm back. <laughs> it's like, what? What do you mean you're back? Where were you? Actually, I, I had a really bad one about about six months ago. It was, he found me and he was so hurt and upset with me for not coming after him. <laughs> he was like, how could you leave me? I was like, I would never leave you if I'd known you were alive. Are you kidding, man? I would never have left you. I wanted to find you forever. I thought you were alive. <laughs> 
I have dreamed about this forever. <laughs> I'm getting this is like, oh, that's my worst nightmare. How could you think that I would ever not come after you? And he's like, you didn't come after me. I've been out there this whole time. And, and I, I was like, no, no, no. And I was pleading with him. It was a long exchange, really painful. But the most painful part was when I woke up. <laughs> I realized he was actually dead. <laughs> and I was like, no. I burst out crying. I woke up, I woke up Elise. It's amazing, I think, that you could have a dream like that, you know, 20 years later. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think I'll probably have those dreams forever. Some of them I, I look forward to. That was a hard one. I felt so terrible abandoning him, and I felt his pain. And uh, that one felt awful, but it's always good to see him. <laughs> so I, I, I do sort of look forward to those dreams. I hope I have them forever. And then the last time I dreamed about him really sticks in my head for some reason. I think it's been maybe, I don't know, five years now. But it was a similar kind of feeling of, oh, shit, you're really alive. I knew it all along. But he looked different for the first time. In all the dreams I had for years, he still looked... 21, tall, dark-skinned Latin dude with kind of long, curly, you know, locks or whatever. And then this most recent dream, um, whatever, late 30s or something now, and he's got very close-cropped, shaved, fully gray hair. Probably, you know, conceivably what he would really look like at this age I don't know, something about how he looked really struck me. It was very realistic. And he had just been off somewhere and he'd been hiding. And he's like, you know, I just needed some time. Thinking in my dream, oh, this is finally real. This is it. I knew it. I knew you didn't die. friends for being a part of this I have to say thank you for your honesty and generosity in sharing your thoughts and memories thank you for your friendship it's been a long time Brenda Belletti Rasan Orange David Goldberg Taya Anderson Brent Kambayashi and Jonah Moran thanks also to two others who've grown old with me Eric Friedenberg for your editorial advice and Luce Fleming for interviewing me and your additional engineering and technical guidance. The music was composed and performed by Tyler Cash. Except for this piece you hear right now, this is Winter Long by Neil Young. And I include it because 
Jonah and our friend Mike and I sang it at Tony's memorial in 1996. Thanks for listening. TF3 for life. Thank you.